Hello and welcome to the Denver Diatribe, a weekly discussion of culture, news, and stuff as it pertains to Denver, Colorado, the most interesting city between Parker and Johnson's Corner. This week, CU Professor Peter McGraw's theory behind how everything is funny except the family circus, and then the TSA at DIA, WTF, rape, excessive groping, and that's just in April of this year. And our last topic, breaking out of the Boulder bubble, if you're into that. With us in the studio are Joel Warner of Westward, freelance investigative journalist Jared Jukang Mayer, and me, your washed-up author and journalist John Dicker. Let's get into the first topic, which is, we should mention, a feature in this month's issue of Wired Magazine, written by our very own Joel Warner. Congrats on, on, on that. Coop. Thank you, sir. And basically, Peter, you know, you can explain your theory, but this is a theory that kind of is all encompassing and it's kind of... And this is about humor. Right. Yeah. And it's... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's, it's kind of shaking things up because from what I read in the article, there's theories of humor that really get, that are very specific, but this is really explains everything, so, so to speak. Yes, it's, just, it's designed to be an overall overarching theory of what makes things funny and what makes things not funny, like Jared's laugh there a moment ago. <laughs> Which wasn't funny at all. Why don't we start with you know, how you got, the story about how you got into humor research? Because this is not really, you know, this is something you stumbled on, too. Absolutely. Actually, I, uh, I study what makes things wrong as one of the major areas of my research interest. In general, I, I look at emotions, judgment, and choice. And I was giving a talk about moral violations and used an example of a church that was raffling off a Hummer SUV to a lucky member of the congregation. And instead of being pissed off about this, people laughed. And I was asked, hey, you say that moral violations cause anger and disgust, and yet we're laughing? Why? And I puzzled over that, and I puzzled over it, and I realized it's an important question to answer. And here I am three years later. <laughs> and, and so, all right, well... You, re you reached the big time now, now being on the the, the uh, Denver Diatribe podcast. You know. Yeah, I might not have gone down this road if I had known this is where it would end. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but let's go back to the why. So why is a moral of violation funny? Well, most aren't. Okay. That's... Uh, that, that's the point, but there are plenty that we that we often are right. So we laugh at, um, uh, you know, we laugh at almost every moral violation you find on uh, the Family Guy and South Park. Uh, we often laugh when uh, when bad things happen to bad people, you know, things that are morally wrong happen to bad people, and we might even laugh at some of the moral violations that the, the TSA seem to be uh, responsible for in, in a few minutes. What basically happens is that the heart of humor actually lies in negative experiences, even though it, it ultimately results in a positive experience, that something has to be wrong. And in, uh, in our vernacular, we call this a violation, while at the same time, the situation has to in some way be okay or acceptable, uh, which we refer to as benign, and hence the benign violation theory of humor that that Joel talked about in the, in the article. So, Peter, what are some other examples of violations or, you know, the ways that, you know, we just hear a joke and we laugh at it, but, but what do you mean when you're talking about these violations, some specific examples that you've come across that are good to illustrate that? Okay, so I, I actually like to use tickling as an example, and I, I like to use it because most humor researchers don't consider that humor. They set that aside because their theories don't do a very good job of explaining it. So why do we laugh when we're tickled? Well, it's a mock attack. It's an attack that's not meant to harm. And yet we don't always laugh when we're tickled. Sometimes if the tickling goes too far, 
that laughter can turn to pain, anger, and so on. We also don't laugh when we tickle ourselves. There's nothing threatening. There's no violation in that situation. It's purely benign. And then lastly, as I like to say, you probably wouldn't laugh if I came over there and tickled you right now. There's nothing okay about that. Well, it depends on the context, and you know. <laughs> you guys are pretty friendly these days, I think. You know. We had a you glass of wine happen? or two, you know. You <laughs> never know. We yeah. could try. Have, have, you, have you been asked this then? Because um, because this is something I often wonder, which is given that much of the of the right wing in this country is you know they're moral crusaders, but generally speaking in the culture they are not funny. I mean, there's there's a handful that I think are funny, but are very very small. They don't kind of permeate pop culture with their humor. Um, whatever you want to say about the reach of, of conservatives, that generally speaking, they ain't funny. Do you, does your theory kind of have you ever been asked that? Uh, no, actually, um, the theory can accommodate these vast individual differences in humor. Uh, so, if it's the case that a that a situation needs to be both appraised as a violation and benign, then that opens up the possibilities that uh, that everybody has a sense of humor but you just have a hard time getting it. That is that what you see as being a violation someone else sees as okay, and uh, what you see as a benign violation someone sees as a malign violation. And so this is one of the reasons why humor doesn't cross cultures very well, because it, it really takes a strong recognition process. And so my guess is, is that the conservatives are laughing about a lot of things. You just can't imagine what they are. Okay. Yeah, yeah like for them it seems like at least for kind of the cultural conservatives maybe, that um, they wouldn't be so quick to find things, I think, that the four of us would find benign. Benign, right? So, I mean, it would be, it would have to be a much further along a kind of parallel. But, I mean, isn't it true that, you know, different uh, classes of people who have differences politically, ethnically, who come from totally different perspectives in our culture will think different things are funny? Like, conservatives would probably think that there there are certain jokes that conservatives would find funny because they look at the world from a certain perspective. They would find a lot of absur- absurdity in the way that liberals conduct themselves and, and absurdity with um, you know Democrats and Obama that you say to a, a liberal audience and you wouldn't get a, a laugh out of it. I mean, what, what, what is, how does well, that well, I'm, I'm not talking about just the realm of political humor. I'm just talking about, I mean, how many people whose, whose humor isn't inherently political are actually conservatives. There, to my knowledge, there are very few. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there does seem to be, um, at least outside of this realm looking in, a, a difference in how um, sort of the commentary, the, the liberal versus conservative commentary is happening, right? So you don't have the conservative version of The Daily Show happening very much. I think they tried something on Fox and it just failed, yeah. Yeah. So there is, so one of the, the ways to, to really stifle humor is to take things incredibly seriously, right? So having a playful <laughs> attitude can help uh, transform these violations into benign violations in, in part because, well, you know, let's not take life too seriously in that way. If you're really trying to tap into conservative anger and angst, that doesn't, that doesn't sell very well with potential audiences. Right. Why, could it work? Uh, I think that it could work. The problem is, is that, I think a lot of times the right now the climate with regard to a lot of the sort of hot topic topic buttons for um, the conservatives, it's going. It would be hard to make that that right. work because they're very strongly social issues. 
Right. I mean, the only person I can think of, and, you know, liberals don't find her funny, uh, I, pretty much myself included, though occasionally she'll have a zinger, is, is Ann Coulter. But her, her humor is very much stoking that anger. Mm -hmm. um, and then I guess there would be benign violations. I mean, the joke about the New York Times building being the target of the 9-11 hijackers, that to a conservative, I don't know how that translates as benign, but I guess it would. Because anyway, I don't know where I'm going with this, but yeah, the one the one thing in our research... you wanted to trash on Ann Coulter a bit is what you wanted to do. Right? Well, it's so easy to you know? yeah, you know, it's low hanging fruit. So our research finds that one of the things that helps transform violations, and especially in the realm of moral violations, into things that are amusing, is how committed you are to the violated norm. So folks who are really strongly committed to these norms have a hard time seeing how an attack on that would be really difficult to do. So going back to this church Hummer scenario, in our studies we found that avid churchgoers were just disgusted by the actions of this church. But people who don't go to church very regularly recognize the violation, see how it's wrong, but also are able to laugh about it. But John, back to what you're saying, you know, I can think of one example of a, of a conservative commentator locally who is, I consider pretty to have a pretty good sense of humor, and that's John Caldera from the Independence Institute. If you're a journalist in this town and you need um, you need a quick quote or something witty to to put in yeah. the paper for a particular story, you call up John Caldera because he will have something really entertaining and usually pretty funny to say about a particular topic. And I and I think that he does it by focusing in on the sacred cows that. Um, a lot of the people but on the it, left and Democrats have and, and utilizing kind of the same techniques of humor that someone uh, like any other uh, comedian that might be of a liberal persuasion might use. That's a fair point, but from what I know about Caldera, he's a pretty hardcore libertarian. He's not a rank-and-file, you know, uh, uh, rally-around-the-flag Republican. Isn't, so yeah, therefore, so he, has, he has ideologically... He can kind of, uh, he's kind of ambidextrous to a certain degree. You know what I mean? As opposed to like Dick Wadhams, just tossing that out there. So, so libertarians can be funny, but the, uh, they, they have social more, I think so, because they're more yeah. ideological. I, well, to a certain degree, they're more likely to be pox on a pox on both your houses <laughs> as opposed to, you know, a team player from the right or the left. Um, cause let's, let's not, I mean, good God, there's no shortage of humorless lefties. Um, uh, don't get me started. Um, I, I would say the one thing that I would say is that it's often very hard to put yourself in other people's shoes. And so my guess is that there are plenty of conservatives who their listeners, their fans who share their same ideology think are pretty funny, think are pretty amusing. But if you don't, if you're standing from the outside, it may be difficult to do uh, in that way. So, I mean, I really, I do really like to believe that ev no, most everyone has a sense of humor, even if we can't recognize it. All right, except yeah. for Bill Keen, who, who does the family circus. Yeah. So we just agree that he's just he has no sense of humor. Yeah, well, they, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of uh, you know newspaper cartoons that aren't funny at all because. You know, in the in the case of the family circus, I mean, what sort of challenge does that give to to anything? I mean, it's it's like the most low level of humor. And I mean, would you say that? I mean, how would you diagnose the problem with family circus? So the, the, <laughs> the yeah, we the, really want to get into this. The problem with the family circus is that um, the violations are so mild; uh, they're so small. 
And so who likely finds the family circus funny is the the very milk toast, mild mannered, suburban parent who has children, right? Who can see this can see this their own sort of trials and tribulations in life in this cartoon. Jeffy was supposed to go and run an errand, but he ran all the way around the neighborhood. <laughs> oh. oh, my God. Silly, That's silly, Jeffy. Wow. That one was great. Oh, the, the, you mean the 900 versions of it? All right, let's get on uh, off this topic and on to some high-quality groping. Okay. Uh, this, this is the recent events at, at Denver International Airport that I have to admit aren't totally related. There was you know, a rape last week that... Two um, mechanics for Frontier Airlines intervened. Thankfully, the, the report, the, the victim reported that two janitors just walked straight by, but two guys who work for Frontier who were working on the ground saw it and, and just ran and, and, and I wouldn't say saved the day. because It was like late at night yeah. on a concourse. On one of the concourses. Right. Uh, which, you know, as, as everyone who's been there knows, can be kind of empty yeah, late at night and they're yeah, big. I mean, night, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a huge place. Um, that's one incident. Then there was an incident earlier this month where a a regular traveler, I think he was from Loveland, who's someone who travels a lot on business, said he was literally, I mean, they they put his hand, their hands down his pants. Um, and he's filed complaints with the TSA and with the Denver police. Um, I think the larger issue is WTF. Uh, and does this make us safer? And I know, Peter, you've done some research on this about what, what actually... The, basically, I think the gist of your research is they're they're kind of deflecting blame is is what they're about in terms of their security practices. Is that right? So I think yeah. The, in in essence, one of the questions becomes when the government sets terror policy, allocates money, decides to prioritize things. Do they do this only with the intention in mind to keep? Americans safer, or do they have other political worries along the way? And so if it's only to keep people safe, then you run these models, these risk analysis models, and you figure out to the best of your ability, where are the threats, how should the money be allocated, and try to thwart terrorism the best you can, knowing that it's imperfect. If there are political concerns, like I may lose my job, if a particular unpopular terrorist act happens, then that may lead them to move away from a purely risk-based approach. And to me, it seems, without knowing the numbers, that the way airport security is being run is that there must be some sort of political worries, that a 9-11-style attack, should it happen again, would be politically devastating. And thus, there's a lot of efforts and money being placed on airport security, perhaps at the cost of other types of security. So you might you overcompensate or at least you set up all of these systems that may not be the most effective at dealing with a particular threat, but at least it, it looks good and it looks like we're doing something. We have all of these um, processes that every single traveler has to go through, these long lines, you have like the puffers up. that you have to go through and these things that seem completely baffling oftentimes when you're going through these security measures like you have to take off your shoes oh now they want you to do this and they change it up all the time but do you would you say that that's a uh an illusion that's sort of set up or some sort of out of, out of a political necessity that 
they they have to go to all of these lengths because if they didn't and something did happen, then it would be everyone's ass on the line. I think that that uh, yeah, I think there certainly are clearly risks to to the airlines, right? Risks to of a of a repeat attack. Now, of course, if you were a terrorist, would you be trying to do this again? No, you'd be moving on to other easier targets. And well, so, well, to be fair, to at least two terrorists have tried to do this again. We had Richard Reed, the shoe bomber, who was, I think, two years after 9-11. That's the uh, Heathrow to New York flight. Right. Um, the home dude who went, went out. When someone said, I, I, my favorite part of the story, I think, was when someone noticed him and he took a match and swallowed it. <laughs> I, like, like he was trying to get rid of the match. Whoa. All right. And then there's the underpants bomber. Um, th- and these guys both went for planes. Yeah, and they both went for it. But isn't the point that these guys, when they were caught, they weren't caught in TSA security. They're they were caught, caught on the plane, plane by yeah. other people who were noticing their behavior rather than this uh, screening process at TSA. Ha- Every time I hear about TSA now, it's always about people who are outraged about having to go, you know, having being groped or having to go through these full body x-ray scanners. Can either of you guys think of a recent example where they've held up um, someone who was caught going through these screenings with a with a bomb strapped to their chest or something in TSA security? I don't know. If, yeah, okay. and I we mean, would I, and we would know. Yeah, they would. Yeah, they, oh, would, they would. They would, would shout that. But in some ways, what you're saying is interesting because in some ways, like we all complain about TSA. We all are very much aware of how much they seem to be doing. You know, we're just because, you know, it's always making the news. We all complain about how long it takes. And therefore, does that frustration that we all have as a society in some ways cover TSA's butt if something does happen? Because at least people wouldn't be saying, well, it's not as if TSA wasn't doing anything. You know, they're, you know we're clearly aware that TSA is just all up on our shit these days. Right. You know, so in some ways, does that frustrate, even if it turns out that that was the wrong stuff, are they somehow covering their butts by just being so, so frustratingly annoying to us when, but so we, some when of we travel? The, like, there was a great piece in The Atlantic, uh, I want to say two years ago, I think Jeffrey Rosenberg wrote it, um, but he basically goes through, he does things to try to trip up, not the actual alarm in the line, but he rips up his one-way boarding pass. He has, uh, you know, he ca- travels with his carry-on with uh, Hezbollah flag, uh, Osama bin Laden, hero of Islam t-shirts. No one says shit, you know? Like, that, to me, is, is kind of troubling. That That's not, the stuff like that doesn't really get noticed. Um, I'm, I'm just saying, his theory was that the T- current TSA system is bad at catching stupid terrorists. But to which I say... There are stupid terrorists. We've seen them, you know, about one a year. So maybe that's a good thing. And then Christopher Hitchens asked this question. If you had a choice, would you go straight through with no security or would you go with TSA? Which, if you had to choose, if you could choose one or the other, which would you do? I hate to say it. I hate to, you know, you know, uh, bolster the security nanny police state, but I know which one I'm going with. Yeah. Well, I don't think anyone's advocating for no security um, and that we go back to, uh, you know, the 1960s where, you know, you just kind of got on a plane. I, I think we're far beyond that in our society and, and everybody would want to have some kind of security screening. I think that the danger is, and um, Peter, I don't know if you'd agree with me, is when when you have these systems set up to try to catch the needle in the haystack by going through every single piece of hay in that haystack – 
it becomes a distraction, right? And so when we're focused on people taking off their shoes and putting every single, you know, 80-year-old woman down to four-year-olds through puffer machines and full body scans, are we allocating our resources in the wrong way? i.e. not going to be focusing on the, the types of things that are going to actually catch people who are likely to commit terrorist acts or some type of violent acts. It kinda, it's it kind of like the same argument with racial profiling, right? If, we're, if we, we send all of our cops out there and they're only focused on trying to pull over people because they're black or because they um, have a certain type of car, well, the people who are going to be committing crimes, well, they'll figure that out and just decide – you know, we'll, we'll, we won't drive that car. We're going to, while the, you know, while the black guys are getting pulled over and searched, then that leaves other criminals to go, um, run around scot-free. And that plays into the fact of what happened in the DIA just a couple weeks ago. The fact that, I mean, it makes me just wonder like how many TSA officials were kind of stationed at, you know, at the security lines while, you know, one concourse away, you know, a woman, you know, enough time transpires that a woman, you know, gets forcibly raped. I mean, you know, yes, that person couldn't have theoretically brought some type of weapon through security by that point, but, you know, if there was a time and the ability for someone to attack someone else like that, the concourse, what else are they able to do? But to be fair, TSA wouldn't be responsible for policing the actual concourses. That would be the the airport and and the the Denver police who are stationed out there. But I I do see your point. It's like, it's all security. Yeah. And I got I got the feeling from reading about that particular gruesome incident that that guy would have that could have happened at the DIA or it could have happened at Joe Schmo Bar in the yeah, par- yeah. in the parking lot. Unfortunately, um, all right. Uh, on well, that, I think Peter, well, Peter has some other. You have- well, I wanted to to emphasize Jared's point about there are opportunity costs to these decisions, right? So when so much focus is placed on those lines. Um, that's money that's being diverted. These are resources being diverted from other uh, investigations, other types of um, security that that might end up being important, especially for not the dumb terrorists, but for the smart terrorists. Gotcha. All right, let's. Uh, our lighter topic um, is on breaking out of the Boulder bubble, and that's is that because you you want to break out, or you're leaving, or you're because moving? Pete is hopeless, hopelessly trapped in the Boulder bubble. I what live, is it? I well, live there. I work there. I socialize there. And and do you ever come down to Denver? Except for this, uh, I do. But he called me the other day and wanted to know where where should go out. Yes, yeah, so I wanted I wanted a restaurant uh, recommendation. And he had no idea. He was like, "Where's Denver?" <laughs> <laughs> I think it's south and east. <laughs> I think it's south and east. But does it feel like like you're living in a Boulder in a bubble in Boulder? Do people there complain about it? No, they, they in some ways often revel in the idea. Is that the right word? I don't even sure. know if that's right. Yeah, word. that works. They, they like they like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they uh there is a there is a little bit of an attitude there. They joke a lot about the boulder bubble, and there is a little bit of an attitude is why would I go to Denver? I have everything I need right here. I've got hiking trails, I can go biking, I've there are good restaurants. And so on, and so the I question don't have becomes: to mix with the lower middle class, yeah, not even middle, barely even middle class, yeah. I would say, yeah, yeah. These guys all live in like Broomfield in Louisville, <laughs> the middle class. Okay, so if we all three of us have each have some tips for for Peter, is that what we're doing for what to do when you yeah when to you kind pop, of show that the there's bubble? more to the world beyond what's right around Pearl Street and Broadway 
in Boulder. That I think that would be great. So, who wants to start? Not me. <laughs> well, well, fine. I'll start with actually the place I recommended to Pete. Um, and I can't actually take credit. I have to give credit to my three-year-old son who suggested it. It is a superstar Asian uh, cuisine. It's uh, the dim sum place down on Alameda. And actually, I went there last night and once again reaffirmed why this is a good place. Because you can't find like this type of authentic dim sum place like this, like this in Boulder. You can find a place which last night basically forced me to buy uh, two-for-one deep-fried lobster. They wouldn't let me get one. Like, no, you you have to get uh, you know two-for-one, nineteen ninety-nine deep-fried lobster. And she was like, oh, it's small, it's small, it's like this, it's really small. And she brings out this like platter or something out of like uh, like some like, m- like medieval like feast with like with like <laughs> lobster heads popping out. Like you couldn't get you know two for one deep fried lobster for nineteen ninety nine as a dim sum in the Boulder bubble. No, no, yeah. and I don't think there's a restaurant that has a name as good as Superstar Dim Sum. Superstar. Is that what it's called? Superstar. Superstar. Asian. Something like that. Something like that. Yeah. It's a great name. So there you go. Okay. So I have one, and this and this is what I recommended to a friend um, a few years ago who I had known in, in college at, at CU, and she's uh, she's since left the Boulder Bubble, but at the time she was like fully immersed in it, and not not just a um, your typical Boulderite lefty liberal. I mean, she was like on the whole new age following Sufis around to um, India when she wasn't in Boulder and things like that. And I remember I was having a conversation with her. I said, why don't you come up to Denver? She said, oh, I I don't know if I want to come up to Denver. It's just so conservative there. (laughs) And I'm like, conservative? (laughs) I mean, and and this is like the, the sort of warped sense of your surroundings, I think, when you spend too much time in Boulder. Because Denver, let it be said to any Boulderites who are listening, is the, as far as the, the Democrats and liberals in the state, has the highest ratio of registered Democratic voters in the state. Republicans never get elected here. We, you know, our Congress people right there and right now are, are advocating some of the most, uh, I guess. Yeah, Di- Diana uh, DeGette could turn into a, like a drooling, you know, she could start talking like <laughs> Abe Simpson and she'd still keep her seat. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Just to show how uh, non-conservative, I guess, Denver is, at least um, on the current political spectrum. But what I recommended to her is take the RTD ride from Boulder up to Denver, get off um, at the downtown station, hop on the 16th Street Mall bus, right, and just ride the bus up the street and and walk around on 16th Street Mall. Right there you will get, like, the greatest, most interesting confluence of what Denver has to offer in terms of uh, diversity and types of people that are down there from, like, uh, you know, hoodie uh, kids to, you know, homeless men to... Uh, all types of people just converge on there, and while you're, and don't don't just stop on 16th Street Mall. Hop on the Colfax 15 RTD bus, ride that up. Maybe go you know up to York Street, get off there, go to the Tattered Cover, go to Twist and Shout, things like that. You'll really start to see, I think, a real get get a real sense of Denver. You can make make a day out of it. Peter. What's the Twist and Shout? It's a, a record store that's kind of connected in this complex with the Tattered Cover bookstore on Colfax, with which I guess Twist and Shout was. Uh, Named yeah, one of the best bookstores in the nation by Rolling Stone. Uh, best record stores, yeah. yeah. Rolling Stone just named it one of the best record stores. That's and my... Boulder just uh, lost their big record store. Their sort of, uh, what is it, used records. And so yeah, Bart's. Second, second, oh, Bart. Yeah, it's yeah, now yeah. a coffee shop. 
Oh, well, see, more, more reason. They, yeah, they needed one, because you would have to... The distance between coffee shops, man, you might have to walk a quarter mile. Um, wow, that's crazy. I, I would only second... I would kind of reinforce your idea, Jared, but I would just say take a drive from, like, way out in West Colfax all the way into Aurora and just stay on Colfax and just see the, the cornucopia of both kind of nice, inviting places and absolute sleaze. Uh, and, you know, different, you know, Ethiopian restaurants, Mexican, you know, every, Greek, 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 Greek um, everything that's there. That would, that would kind of give you a, a dose of, that would, that would bust Get you out of that bubble. a few dive bars on the way. Yeah, uh, yeah. That would bust you out of that bubble real quick. Um, so, I th- and I think that kind of, that part of Colfax is just, is, is something glorious. Some great neon signs, too, uh, which I'm, I think every city needs to have. Um all right, are we ready to move? Or do you feel busted? Is this helpful? So I, I just want to make sure I, I get your advice straight. So I'm supposed to go to this dim sum restaurant, and I'm supposed to ride a bunch of buses around <laughs> or your car. Denver. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Or, you can, or you can hop on the B-cycle bikes. It's official like right. Denver tour pretty soon. Basically, you ride buses around and eat deep-fried lobster. That sounds pretty good. Get okay. a piggyback ride from a from a bum or something like yeah, that. Like, <laughs> Someone should do a bite in like a Colfax sleaze tour or a Colfax you know boozy tour of just you know with that includes includes like grisly crime stuff. That would be that would be kind of fun. Yeah, I actually have to say that Colfax is one of my favorite parts of Denver because it clearly is not Boulder. Like you know that you're in a different place, yeah. and I really enjoy. Uh, it makes you a little uncomfortable at times, and there's really great places. The dive bars are wonderful there. There's only two decent dive bars in Boulder, and they don't stack up against the Colfax ones. Except I can't stand the one, like the, the squire that smells like freaking cleaning detergent or industrial strength cleaner. Oh, man. I thought I got rid of that when I left high school. But anyway, that's a side <laughs> note. Uh, loves and hates. Let's start with you, Jared. Okay, my hate actually comes about from listening to last week's diatribe episode, which I wasn't on in which, uh, we, you guys, along with Erica Grossman, were discussing Denver suburbs and, uh, you, Joel and John, you both mentioned the, uh, city of Arvada and talked about the city and I hated on it and maybe also loved it a little bit because right when both of you said Arvada, you both identified yourselves as non Denverite East Coast transplant assholes who came here yeah. because it's not Arvada, it is Arvada. And as the as the reigning member of the actual the native, token, token native token native species here, it is Arvada, Colorado. You say Lyman too? Well, we definitely don't say Arvada, and it's only a thing like every time I hear it, and it's it's kind of like people from the East Coast <laughs> tend to say, say it more than transplants from the West Coast. And I don't know what it is. Is there like an Arvada, Massachusetts or something? No, to sound more respectable. Oh. Not a stupid twang that you have with your voice. Okay, well, anyone else anyone else who's noticed this Arvada trend and, and hated on it, please, you please punch, do back me up. Should you punch them in the face if you hear someone say Arvada, you should just punch them in the face and walk away? Y- yes, definitely. Okay. I, say, I, I think that's a pretty reasonable approach. Okay. <laughs> All right, shout ahead, Joel Warner. Okay. <laughs> With I'm your not flat even try my Boston accent anymore. Okay, <laughs> um, I'm gonna love this week. It's actually it's a, it's a follow up love from love a few weeks ago, which is I said that I at least loved uh, the challenge that New York Times threw out to me when it was gonna throw up this paywall. Uh, you know, 
I just didn't know what I was going to do. And surely after literally like one week of the paywall, I hit my 20 articles a week limit. And I was like, shit, now what do I do? Am I going to pay for it? So I actually threw it out on Facebook. And like literally all my friends who are almost all writers literally like started trying to like guilt me into like buying it. Like the other person's like, why, why of course you have to spend money on saving journalism. Like as if it's like my, like it's like my responsibility alone I, I, to I save I told New York you Times. That, that Maureen, you can't let Maureen Dowd shop at Payless. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that was, that was a very good point there, John. Um, <laughs> but you know, and actually I did decide, I actually went and got uh, the Sunday New York Times edition, which at least for the first few months, is the same, you know, the same fifteen bucks that I would have paid for just like the digital. Now I think, you know, I think it goes up to thirty bucks a month. But so far, I absolutely love it. Not because I'm saving, you know, the gray lady or something, but literally just the just the physical joy of walking out my door this morning, this Sunday morning, and having this physical newspaper and I spread it out across my dining room table. Like that to me is like a joy that I haven't had since I was. Like back in high school, back living in my parents' house, and so yes, yeah, so I do love. But it. New York Times doesn't carry the family circus. Yeah, you know, there's no funny pages in the Sunday Times. So it kind of bummed me out. Couldn't get my laughs from uh, Jeffrey walking on the circles around the neighborhood. And now that Frank Rich doesn't write for the opinion pages, there's is there anyone writing funny stuff on? Well, sometimes the book review has funny stuff. Yeah, style section. Oh well, oh. but no, I love. Not the fact that I saved New York Times, but I just like the old-fashioned version that I now have of New York Times. Peter, what do you got? I have a love also. Okay. And it actually has to do with written word. Very good. So Joel, uh, when he was doing this Wired article uh, with me, would always ask me, have you read this? Have you read that? And I realized how I haven't read nearly as much as he has. And he encouraged me, basically forced me to get a subscription to The New Yorker. And uh, I've been carrying magazines with me, travel a lot carrying magazines with me, and leave them behind so my load gets lighter along the way. And uh, at first I found myself resenting Joel for making me get The New Yorker. As often, as many, many of us do. <laughs> well, well, the one thing that I didn't realize is that it was going to come every week. <laughs> And it's, it's dense, right? It's really dense, and there's a lot there. And so I found myself uh, in coping with the stacks, just ripping out the articles that I wanted to read and recycling the rest of it. And so from the April 4th magazine week, uh, the, mag- uh, the magazine, there's a, an article about Alexei Navalny, I believe I'm pronouncing that right, that was a page turner. I read it on a plane and uh, Alexei is taking on the rampant government corruption in Russia. He's a young guy, and he is being very public about it, creating websites that Russian citizens can log on to and point out potential areas of corruption with regard to government bidding especially and so on. And basically this guy will either become the next president of Russia or he'll be dead. And... Bets are he's going to be killed, essentially. So I was telling a, a friend about this who's of Russian descent, and, and she was marveling that he's still alive, given uh, the people that he's going against. It, it, I was wrapped. It was amazing. So are you I'm loving going. on this story or your New Yorker subscription in general or uh, taking advice from Joel? Loving on me. Oh, it's the story, definitely. Okay. Not, <laughs> not any of those other things. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Just want some clarification. All right. I, I'm gonna, uh, I have a mixed love and hate 
one. It's, There's a lot of love in this room today. Don't worry, I'll I'll, I'll bring some bile. Okay, um, good. Well, the one thing I want to hate on is just certain categories of restaurants. You've probably heard me talk about this a little bit before, but certain categories of restaurants in this town. Denver, I think, is big enough for more than one Indian place. And in, in central Denver, it's pretty much Little India or almost nothing. And then with vegetarian food, there's Watercourse and City O City. And people just, oh, they're so great. Eh. I know a chef who will remain, remain nameless who, as a prank, uh, put a whole bunch of spices and knocked, you know, left them outside Watercourse with a note saying, please learn how to use these. <laughs> That food is bland. <laughs> that that shit is so bland, they might as well move it to, like, Surrey or Sussex or some other, you know, <laughs> soggy place in the UK. And, and everyone just loves on it. And there's just something about this town, I think, that there's room for, in certain categories, there's room for one restaurant. And I don't I don't quite get it. I and mean, there must be some sort of market thing I'm not going on. Uh, I, I don't know. And it seems like the good, as, you know, the good... Uh, ethnic places are you know, either up on Federal or out on South Parker, but I'm just asking why. Why is that? So you want more Indian places? And more, or... more than, you know, I don't want one specific ethnic uh, type restaurant dominated by one restaurant. If I find that annoying. I feel like we're, we're a bigger city than that. I hope. I hope we are. Maybe we're not. Um, so that's my, my slash love and hate. The, the one I will love on is, and this is the other point, is for vegetarians out there, the best vegetarian food seems to be at non-vegetarian restaurants. Like the best veggie burger is at um, Park and Company or Park oh, Burger, Park Burger yeah. by far. Or uh, Cherry Creek Grill uh, is a close second. And then I had an awesome veggie barbecue sandwich, uh, tofu barbecue at this place called Oink or Oinks on uh, East Colfax, like right near Cremaria. It was fantastic. Not, again, not a vegetarian. And it's called it's called Oinks, and it's not a vegetarian restaurant. You say? Well, yeah, because it's barbecue. How do you even go in there, John? How? Why would you go in a place called Oinks? Because they have tofu barbecue, and it's How awesome. How do you know that? You, you told somebody. I actually learned about that on the Westward Food Blog. So props yeah. to what? Props to Amber for for posting that. Um, and that's all the oinking I got time for today. <laughs> we will see you on the website, denverdietribe.com. Subscribe on iTunes. Follow us at Denver Diatribe on Twitter. And Huffington Post. And Huffington the Huffington Post, Post Denver. You can now read us on Huffington Post yep. where we rant some more. Yep. Tell your friends. And also, let me just throw this out there. We're thinking of doing a live podcast, um, but we don't have any clue about where or what context to do it. So if you have ideas or if there's places that might sponsor us, uh, meaning they might have a good audio setup uh, and let us bring our audience there, by all means, uh, chat us up and let us know. All right. Thanks for Jared, Peter, and Joel. I'm John, and we're out. (laughs) 